right. Well, if you have a Bible, we are going to be in Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. Uh, Before we get there, we're going to look at uh, a few verses just before that, uh, verses 27 through 30. Uh, As you're turning there again, uh, Pastor Dennis had said, my name is Dane Miotov. I'm the student pastor here at LifePoint. Been here for about uh, three and a half years now. Loved it. Um, My uh, my wife is not here this morning. She's off working um, and my parents are in town taking care of our daughter. So she's not here either. It's just me. But uh, this morning, uh, we're going to be in Philippians. Like I said, I want to read verses 27 through 30. Um, Philippians, before we read it, just kind of give you a little bit of background. Um, Philippi, when Paul went to the city of Philippi, uh, Philippi was actually uh, quite known for a lot of patriotic nationalism. Um, And so consequently, when he starts planning Jesus communities there uh, that are filled with people that are like, Caesar's not king, Jesus is king. Um, That ultimately led to a lot of opposition, a lot of people upset. And so the context of this letter to the Philippians is very much one of Paul writing to a group of people that are going through an incredibly just difficult time. Um, And I just wanted to say that because I think all of us would agree that that is um, incredibly relevant for just us and even looking back on this whole year of of 2020. Um, And so what I want to do is I want to read together verses 27 through 30. Uh, I want us to pray together and then we will dive on uh, into it. I'm I'm excited about uh, this text, but I got to be honest, and if you've read chapter 2, 1 through 11, feeling pretty convicted as I was studying this and putting this stuff together, so... Um, should be a fun morning, all of us together. So verses 27 through 30, let's read this and then we'll pray together and dive on into it. Verse 27 says this, Paul says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Let's go ahead and pray together. Oh, Father, I thank you for, uh, man, this time that we get to spend together, uh, just in your word, looking at it and what it has to say uh, for us. You describe your word as a, as a double-edged sword that has the power to cut through both joint and marrow. And sometimes that's a really good thing, and that's a really something that we welcome and, and whatnot. But other times we're just like, man, like that, that hurts. But ultimately, I know that 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 double-edged sword is in the hand of a loving father that cares enough to intercede and to speak truth and to step into our world to lay his one and only son down so that we can know life and joy and peace and fulfillment, that we can know the relationship that we were made to be in. So, Father, I pray that as we look at your word here this morning, God, that you would speak to us as we know that we need to hear for your glory, God, but for our good as well. And if you're willing, just ask you to to pray for yourself. Pray, God, please teach me something here this morning.
And then if you could pray for me, uh, pray that what I say would be helpful, would be clear, uh, would ultimately make God look awesome. Well, Father, we love you and uh, we trust you. Uh, please use this time. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Well, quick poll, quick show of hands. How many of you guys have ever flown a kite before? Anybody in here? Okay, all right, more than I thought. Um, I've only flown a kite once, um, and I'm going to use the word flown in quotation marks, okay? Um, So a few years back, Josie and I, my wife, we had watched this movie called Saving Mr. Banks. I don't know if any of you guys have ever seen that movie, Uh, but the movie is all about how the story of Mary Poppins, the movie Mary Poppins, came about, right? It's actually pretty good, and like watching Mary Poppins and Saving Mr. Banks kind of had the same feel to it, right? It's filled with these songs, you're just like, Let's go fly a kite, right? Makes you feel really good and like warm inside. Like, man, like, I love that story. And so Josie and I had gotten done watching that movie and we're like, man, we should go fly a kite, right? Because the people in that movie look so happy and we can go fly a kite out in the park and have a good time. And so we went out and we bought a kite and uh, we went out to this local park in our area. There weren't really very many people around because the weather wasn't, to be honest, all that great. Um, It was kind of gusty. So we're like, ah, there's wind. Kites work in the wind, right? So we'll just go out there and we'll start flying this kite. And for the next, I think like 30, 45 minutes, maybe an hour, just over and over and over again, one of us is on the end with the rope, right? And the other person's got the kite and they just kind of like throw it up in the air. And it just nosedives every single time. It just like, time after time, like, are we doing this wrong? Like, is there a trick to this in some way? Because in the movie, they just kind of throw it up and it glides and it looks amazing. Why is it not working that well? It was so bad. I, I kid you not. It was so bad that there was a local police officer that drove by the park. And he comes into the parking lot and just parks, rolls down his window and just stares at us. And we're looking at him like, what is he doing? And so we just kind of continue to try to fly our kite. I noticed out of the corner of our eye, he's laughing. Like he's just laughing at us, these two people in the middle of the park that nobody else is around, right? Which should have been a cue for us to just, it's not a good kite flying day, that are just consistently nosediving this kite. Now, I share that story with you because I think there's a lot of things that are like that. And this is what I mean by that. We watch a movie, right? We saw this movie, Save Mr. Banks. We're like, oh man, there's the ideal. This looks amazing. Let's go pursue this thing. Let's have that kind of experience. And then we go out and we try to do it. And it's way harder than what we thought it was going to be like. Like way more difficult. Apparently kites don't just like fly when you throw them up in the air. I don't know. I still to this day have not flown another kite. So if one of you guys is really good at it, you can come talk to me after service and let me know what I'm missing. But that idea of seeing the ideal, of seeing something you want, seeing something you want to be a part of, and then trying it and pursuing it only to realize that it's way harder than you thought. There's a lot of things like that. And specifically speaking, I want to speak about uh, the church, the Lower Sea Church, our local church community. Because I think the local church can be like this as well. And if you're a little lost, hang with me here for a second, because we're in this pandemic, right? This whole year of 2020, right? And there's a thing about it. There, there's something here to, to say about a pandemic is that obviously there's global suffering involved. And to a lot of people and a lot of, and rightfully so, suffering's not a good thing, right? The one thing that's true about suffering, though, I'll tell you this, is that suffering, and you all know this, suffering has the ability to spotlight someone's neediness, 
right? You don't really ever feel needy when you're not suffering. Things are going well, like life's great. As soon as suffering rolls around, all of a sudden it starts to expose people's neediness. When I was in grad school, we had a professor talk about needing, when you're doing missions, you need to find out what people's worldview is, what they actually believe. Because a lot of times people will tell you they believe one thing when they actually don't believe that thing. And so we asked him, like, well, how do, you, how do you figure that out? How do you know what people actually believe? He's like, it's really simple. You wait until a catastrophe strikes. You got to wait until something really bad happens. You got to wait until suffering comes about. And suffering will spotlight what people actually believe. And in your own life, suffering will bring about what the needs are in your life more than anything else. You know, I think community is one of those things. As we stepped into the year 2020 without COVID, and then all of a sudden COVID hit and community was taken out of your life, I think all of us probably realized in a new way how much we need one another. How much we need a group of people around us. Even for us introverts, right? Because I'm an introvert. And for the first two weeks of COVID, I was like, this is great. I can just stay at home by myself, computer, work, nobody else around. And week three, I was like, oh, I kind of miss people. And suffering will spotlight your neediness. And, and this, is, this, is, this is an interesting point because for the Christian, for the follower of Jesus... This is an incredible thing because all throughout history, Christians have known and been able to stand out and glorify God, mostly in the contexts of suffering, in difficult situations. Fourth century, in Rome, Roman Emperor Julian, he wrote in the fourth century talking about uh, poverty and the disease and the sicknesses that were going on in their city. He says this in the fourth century. He said, regretting the progress of Christianity because it pulled people away from the Roman gods. He said, atheism, which he's talking about Christianity in that moment. He says, Christianity has been specifically advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar and that the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. While those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. He's like, these Christians are ridiculous. He's like, they're caring for their own poor and they're caring for ours. Jump ahead in history, 4th century, mid-4th century, when the bubonic plague was going through Europe. One French chronicler had said the nuns of one city hospital, having no fear of death, tended to the sick with all sweetness and humility. New nuns replaced those who died until most had died. And if you know anything about the bubonic plague, like it was, it was horrible. I mean, you'd go to bed feeling fine. You'd, you wouldn't wake up. Like it would kill you that fast. But in the midst of those contexts of suffering, you see Christian communities spotlight the glory and the love and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ to a community around them. And as LifePoint Church, as our local church, I think we can read stories like that, hear stories about that, hear stories in the mission field and whatnot. Man, that's incredible. That's awesome. Those Christians man, what sacrifice they showed, how they advanced the gospel in that way. And we can hear all these stories of Christians spotlighting Jesus in the midst of suffering and think to ourselves, like, man, I, I want that. And we look back on COVID 5, 10, 15 years from now, 
I think most of us are probably like, I, I, I want LifePoint Church to have its own stories like that. I don't want to be somebody who's just repeating stories of other people. I want to have stories ourselves of how we saw God show up. The problem, though, is that those stories don't, they don't just come about. And like watching a movie and saying, man, it looks incredible. Let's go out there and try it. Only to spend the whole afternoon just nosediving over and over and over and over and over again. We can do the exact same thing. Let's shine as a city on a hill in Plano, Texas for those around us. Extolling the glories of God and proclaiming Jesus Christ through sacrificial love and service. But then when we attempt to go out there and do it, we can find ourselves nosediving over and over and over and over and over again. And what I want to talk about this morning is how do you do that? How do you become a local church congregation that thrives and stands out in the midst of suffering and difficulty? Before we get to that part, I want to kind of come at it from the opposite end. So I want to talk about first, how do we nosedive, right? Let's figure out how do we do the wrong thing, and then we can figure out, okay, how do we take steps forward in this? So how do we nosedive in a season of suffering? If you're taking points, the first point that we see in Paul's letters here to the Philippians is this. If you want to nosedive as a church, as a local congregation, as a community of Jesus followers, what you need is you need division, you need division. So Paul writes to the Philippians, exhorting them to remain unified in Philippians 1.27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And this is why chapter 2 picks up and kind of starts off in kind of just such a weird way, right? In 1 and 2, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2 of Philippians, Paul says, So, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, right? He's appealing to the idea of, y'all have all of these things in common. He says, verse 2, Then complete my joy by being of the same mind. He's exhorting them to unity because if you want to nosedive, you need division. You need to become divided amongst yourselves. And persecution, difficulty, what the Philippians were experiencing at that time, is difficult in and of itself. It's really difficult to go through that divided, alone, without community, without people around you. Division will destroy a church. If we want to nosedive, that's what we need. And the, 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 difficult, the difficult truth of this right now is the fact that we here at LifePoint, any other church in this community in the United States, we're like, we're not, we're not immune to this. Like, just because we follow Jesus doesn't mean that we're immune to the temptations of division in our culture. Which is really rough because our culture right now is probably more divided than it's been in a long, long time. If I were to just kind of take a, take, a, take a quick poll of hands, you don't need to raise your hands for this, um, but if I were to take a quick poll of hands and just ask, hey, I want you to raise your hand if you voted for Trump. I want you to raise your hand if you voted for Biden. I want you to raise your hand if you think that we as a church are doing too much in response to COVID. I want you to raise your hand if you think that we're doing too little. I want you to raise your hand if you think that we should wear masks. I want you to raise your hand if you think that we shouldn't wear masks. I guarantee that I would see hands go up 
at every single one of those questions. And don't get me wrong, it's not a bad thing and it's not a wrong thing to have different opinions on stuff. We can have different opinions. That's not a big deal, right? No united community ever agreed on every single thing in their lives, right? That's not realistic. That's not going to happen. Unity doesn't equal uniformity, right? You don't have to have uniformity in order to have unity. You don't have to all be the same in order to be united around one another. But what I want to ask is what sets apart an opinionated, unified church from an opinionated, divided church? What sets those two groups of people apart? If we want to nosedive, how do we do it? And the second point that Paul brings up here that I want to highlight is that what we need to do is we need to prioritize our own interests over that of others. If we want to nosedive, we need to prioritize our own interests over that of others. Because this is what Paul is ultimately pushing them towards, right? He never says you have to have the same opinion on everything. He doesn't say that. But here, he does say that you need to think the same way on this thing. Like, this is not one of these things where Paul's like, ah, you can think this way if you want to, but if you don't, that's okay, that's okay too, don't worry about it. He says the opposite, actually. Philippians 2, 2 through 4, he says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is how unity works. When you've got a group of people, and think about it, think, like just think about the beauty behind this. When you have a group of people, that every single person in that group, every single person, without exception, is thinking to themselves, like, I need to prioritize the interests of everyone else in the group over my own interests. And you just stop and think about that picture. Like, that is an incredibly beautiful thing to behold. And theoretically, that's how marriage should work, Right? Is that the husband lays down his life for the wife. The wife lays down her life for the husband. You have this mutual self-giving, selfless sacrifice for the other person. And in that picture of beauty, the gospel is proclaimed to the rest of the world. But when you've got a team member who doesn't do that, that's when your unity begins to break. So uh, as a student pastor... I, uh, I get paid to do a lot of fun stuff, right? Like play dodgeball and basketball and, um, and video games, right? Because that's what our students like to do a lot of times. And one particular video game we were playing one time is this video game called Zombies. And uh, it's pretty self-explanatory. You got four people on a team. All of them have guns. They're in an area. And there's just horde after horde of zombies just coming at them, right? Um, and so you kind of find your own little location, all four of you together. And you just gear up and you just completely stay together and shoot down horde after horde after horde after horde. And we were playing this one time with three other guys in our street ministry. And there was one guy in particular who decided that, man, you know what? I don't want to just sit here with the rest of the group. I want to go chasing after this like loot or prize. I don't even remember what it was at, but like there's loot that these zombies will drop. So you can run off and grab the loot and come back and it bolsters up your scores and your points and you can get better guns and things like that. And so he's like, eh, forget this. Like, I'm going to run off and go after the loot. And as soon as he left, like, our whole, like, group team dynamic just began to get broken down. And we got overrun. 
And that's because when you don't have your mindset on the same thing, your team will not thrive. When you get one person on there who says, eh, I'm going to do my thing. That's when division starts to, to seep in. And, and as soon as a church family, again, I'm not saying we have to think the same way about this, have the same opinions about this, but as a church family, as soon as we start to take this attitude of, I don't care what other people's thoughts are about COVID, I'm going to do my thing. As soon as we start to think that way, as soon as we just say, I don't care about what makes someone else feel safe. I don't care about what makes someone else feel comfortable. I'm going to do my thing. That's when we're going to get in trouble. Because that's when division will seep into this church family and it will crush it from the inside out. That's how we nosedive. And I don't want that. I want us to have a story. I want us to have a story of laying our lives down for one another, for the community of Plano that we're around. And the way in which we do that, if we want to avoid nosediving, what Paul points the Philippians to here is we have to look to Jesus' sacrificial humility and lordship. There's two things in this next this section of text, this poem that he gives about Jesus in verses 5 through 11. And it's Jesus' humility and his lordship. First of all, Paul highlights Jesus' humility as a way to depict the same attitude, the same heart, the same disposition that we as Jesus' followers are called to have. In verses 5 through 8, he says, You should have the same attitude toward one another that Christ Jesus had who, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a slave, by looking like other men, and by sharing in human nature, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And this is crazy because if you really think about this, what Jesus did in this moment, think about it, like Jesus is divine, didn't have to come down to earth. Didn't have to take on human flesh. Jesus intentionally inconvenienced himself in a way that he did not have to for the welfare and the benefit of others. For the welfare and the benefit of others. And we as Jesus' followers are called to do just that, follow. Do just as he did. And the problem is, what makes this difficult is the concern that naturally comes with this. And the concern that naturally comes with this is, okay, well, hold on a second. Dane, if I prioritize the interests of others over my own interests, then who's going to take care of me? Right? And I don't, I don't, that's not an illegitimate fear. Okay, I want to say that, that's not an illegitimate concern. That's not a wrong concern to have. Okay? And in one way, Paul would say, well, others. Right? If you prioritize the interests of others, then they should theoretically prioritize your interests. And so you take care of them. They take care of you. That's how it should work, right? But every single one of us is thinking, I was like, mm, that's not actually how it works in real life, though. I was like, I know, right? And Paul knew that, too. Because as you continue on, Paul doesn't just say you should have this attitude of humility, Paul then makes this sharp turn towards Jesus' supreme lordship. In verses 9 through 11. 
He says, as a result, God exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. So the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, the Philippians were experiencing a time in Philippi where the local government was hunting them down, persecuting them, bringing suffering and pain and death into their life. And they were scared. And they were scared. And Paul acknowledges that when he says in Philippians 1.20, he says, and do not be frightened in anything by your opponents because the Philippians were scared. It's okay to be scared. But into that fear, Paul tells them this. He says, hey, listen, I want you to prioritize the interests of others. I want you to consider their interests as more important than your own. It doesn't mean that your interests or your preferences or your opinions are not important. They are important. I just want you to get the priority right. I want you to get the priority right in the sense of seeing their interests as more important than your interests. And always remember that you are a child of the God of the universe who owns a cattle, the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns everything. Every knee will bow to him. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord. You don't stand by yourself with this fear of like, well, what about me? What if I'm not taken care of? He's like, no, 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 no. You forget who you are. You are an adopted son and daughter. Your Jesus runs this world. And he is more than able to take care of you in every single need that you have. In fact, he knows more about what your neediness is than you do. And he perfectly is able to meet it. See, the Christian is able to freely prioritize the needs of other people because the Christian knows, I'm all set, I'm good, I'm, I'm taken care of. And when you're taken care of, it frees you up to take care of other people. Like when you're convinced that you're good, you're set, your needs are covered, it frees you up to take care of other people and to meet their needs. This is, this is basically, this is the concept of generosity. Like generosity flows most easily when it comes from a source of surplus. When you've got more than you need, it's easier to give some away because you're already taken care of. You got what you need. You're not going to starve. You got everything you need. There's a... Uh, an actor named John Krasinski, who's probably best known as Jim from The Office. And uh, when COVID hit back in March, March, April-ish is when he started this up. He started his own YouTube channel um, called Some Good News. Um, If you've never seen it, it's really good, actually. Um, Check it out if you haven't. Um, But he'll do these episodes on this YouTube channel called Some Good News. And he'll do these episodes because he realized that so much of the news in the media was just being flooded with like negative stories. Just negative story after negative story after negative story, depressing story after depressing story after depressing story. And he's like, man, like there's got to be some good news in the world. Let's highlight that and set our minds on it and think about that. So that we're not just being flooded with negative stuff. There's positive stuff going on in the world as well. So he started up this channel called Some Good News and it's incredible. And he recently came out with a, a Christmas episode where he heard about this guy who because of COVID had, had, uh, had kind of fallen under difficult financial times. He'd actually lost his wife a couple years back. And so he was the father of just two kids, just the only father, um, two kids. Christmas was coming up and, uh, and he realized like, man, like I really want to um, just, man, just bless my kids this Christmas. It's been such a hard year for them. They lost their mom two years ago, but it's difficult because like I, I've really been strapped financially. And so what he decided to do was he was a collector of like comic book regalia and things like that. He's like, you know what? I'm just going to sell 
a majority of all of the stuff that I've collected over the years. I'm gonna jump on eBay, I'm gonna sell it, and uh, I'm gonna use that money to buy Christmas gifts for my kids, which is a pretty amazing thing. And, uh, and so Krasinski found out about this and actually tried to go onto, this is funny, he tried to go onto YouTube and buy all of the guy's stuff. Uh, but then the guy thought it was a scam, and so he blocked Krasinski off of eBay, um, which was really funny, right? Um, and, uh, and so anyway, Krasinski has him on the show and, uh, and also finds out that like the guy is a huge uh, Dwayne Johnson fan, who's also known as The Rock. And so he has Dwayne Johnson on the show as well, and Krasinski and Johnson look at this guy and they're like, you know what, man, like, number one, all of your stuff, you're going to, I want you to take that off of eBay right now because we're going to cover all of your kids, all of your kids' Christmas stuff. And as soon as all of this COVID stuff is over, we're going to fly you out to LA. You're going to come on the set because uh, Johnson's working on a new uh, movie right now for, for DC Comics. And uh, he's like, we're going to have you on the set. Uh, Johnson's like, I'm going to give you the autographed script that I'm using, that I'm working on for this movie. I'm going to leather bound it. I'm going to give it to you. It's yours. Um, And this guy just like breaks down in tears because of the overflow of generosity that these other two guys had. And you listen to that story and watch that story. You're like, well, of course, like they're generous. They've got a lot of money. And I'm like, yeah, that's the point. Generosity flows most easily when it comes from a source of surplus. Now, don't misunderstand me in this story. I'm not saying that only, uh, only rich people can be generous, right? Uh, and I'm not saying that these two guys wouldn't be generous if they didn't have money. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that the simple point of generosity is easiest when you've got a surplus of something that you don't really need. But the theological point to us is this. As adopted sons and daughters of the king of the universe, we have a source of surplus that's far beyond anything that we can even imagine. And a lot of times our our fear, our, our, our inability to be generous, or our just concern is out of this mindset of just not believing that. You know, we'll, we'll ascribe to it and say, yeah, that's true. Theologically, I believe it. it's in the Bible, sure. Like, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Like, of course, yeah. But our actions and our dispositions and our attitudes don't actually reflect that. There's a disconnect. And don't misunderstand me up here. I am not preaching to you guys as though I've, I've figured all this out. Like I said, this was probably one of the most convicting uh, sermons I have ever prepped for and put together. But as I was praying and reading and thinking through what I should speak about, what God would want me to speak about, what, what I should bring up with all of us, a conversation for all of us to have together. This just kept coming into my mind over and over and over and over again. And largely as a result of like, Dane, you're not doing this, like you're not acting that way, you're not doing this right. But if it was only perfect preachers that preached, then we wouldn't really hear much of the word of God. And so Dennis Tolson gave me that line, so you all can thank him for that. But if you're finding yourself right now in this place of like, man, this hesitation of putting other, other people's preferences before your own, and I've had to do this exact same thing, maybe just kind of stop and ask myself in just, uh, just a, a moment of honesty, like, do I, do I believe like God's going to take care of me? Like, do I really believe he, he's got my family taken care of? 
Or has it turned into something that's stopped in my head, as PG would say, stopped in my head, but never actually reached to my heart? And if that's the case, God doesn't look at me with shame. He looks at me as a loving father being like, Dane, just, just, just turn around. Just turn around. Because when we begin to live out of that surplus mindset of I am the adopted son of the God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, when I've got that mindset, then I can turn knowing I'm taken care of, I'm good, he's got me. And I can fix my eyes out to a world around me. And I can prioritize, consider the preferences of others as more important than my own. That's when I can consider the preferences of others as more important than my own because I know God's got me. That's why Paul says in Philippians 2, 3, and 4, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. And I've struggled with that, with those verses before in the past. I'm like, what does that look like, practically speaking? Like, considering the interests of others as more significant than myself, like, what does that actually look like, practically speaking? And, and, and before I say kind of what's on my heart, I want to give kind of a quick confession because I don't feel as though I've done a good enough job of this as I should have done, especially being a pastor and on staff here at a church. I don't think I've done as good of a job about this as I should have been doing, and I need to apologize for that. Because as I've read through and as I've prayed and as I've thought about this practical application, I honestly think some of the simplest things that we can do in order to prioritize the preferences of other people, the interests of other people, is wearing a mask, to be honest. And I know some people have medical conditions that makes it difficult to wear masks. That's fine. That's no big deal. I'm just saying, as I read through this, what this speaks to me in my, in my life, as I'm going about my life and going from place to place to place and being around people, like, I look at this and I feel like, Dane, that's something you could do. That's something you can do. You can work to social distance as best as possible. You can extend grace out to people who think differently about things even if, and there's some irony here, some comical, so don't take me seriously on this. Even if you know they're wrong, right? My mind said, I'm like, mm, you're wrong. You don't need to be doing that. Like, that's not right. That's not factual. Like, even if you know they're wrong, get this. Because I love research articles, and I love reading up on things. I like making decisions based off of things that are proven by research and by studies. Okay? That's just the way I am. Um, and so you might be the same way. You might be thinking to yourself and saying to me, Dane, I've read articles that say masks don't do anything. Or I've read articles that saying this whole thing is being used for political purposes and hidden agendas and therefore we don't need to be doing any of this. And I'm going to softly and kindly say, like, I, I hear you. Okay, I hear you. And yet get this. Paul wrote to the Corinthians. Different group of people. Same time period. And in this letter to the, the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians I want you to take note of something, that Paul believed that he was not under the Jewish law. He believed that period of time was over. We were now under the law of Christ. And yet he writes in 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23, he says, For though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. 
To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside of the law. Paul's saying he stepped into different contexts where people believed different things and he conformed to what they believed while the entire time never sacrificing what God had called him to do in his revealed word, right? There are certain things that we hold as non-negotiables as followers of Jesus, but then there's a whole ton of other stuff that's not a non-negotiable. And Paul's saying, I never sacrificed the non-negotiables. But if something was not a non-negotiable and it got me closer to sharing the gospel with somebody else, then I went for it. It says in verse 22, to the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. Don't, Don't miss this. Paul knew that the lifestyle he was living was not accurate with what was objectively true. Paul knew the lifestyle he was living in order to reach Jews, in order to reach those outside the law. He knows the back of his mind is like, this is not objectively true. And yet he still stepped into it and did it anyway. Why? To get the gospel out. He's like, there's certain non-negotiables I'm not going to cross. But there's a whole lot of other stuff that people believe in. He's like, if it's true or not, it doesn't matter. He's like, if it'll get me in to be able for them to hear me preach the gospel, he's like, I'm going to do it. You know, when I just think to myself, as I was kind of thinking about this and praying about this, kind of just felt like God was saying, like, Dan, if you were a missionary to an indigenous tribe of people off in another country, and these people believed that people should wear masks and they should social distance, And if you just did those two things, and it would make these people feel more comfortable to come hear you preach the gospel, would you do it? Like, I personally would have a hard time standing before Christ being like, "Mm, no, don't think so. Didn't think it was worth it. Because it actually wasn't true. They didn't need to wear masks. They didn't need to social distance. I don't think that conversation would go very well. This is, the, this is the mindset that Paul calls us to have. This is why we set our personal preferences aside. Because at the end of the day, we are citizens of a kingdom. And that kingdom has one purpose. And that's to advance the glory of God every single place we possibly can. And part of the way in which we do that is we set aside our own personal preferences. We don't believe that this world is changed by bettering institutions, by making institutions better. We believe this world is changed when individual human hearts are changed. And when individual human hearts are changed, inadvertently it leads to institutions changing. But it starts with the individual. It starts with the person. The person we seek to reach. And it starts by considering their preferences as more important than our own. Because again, I'm good. God's got me. I'm taken care of. I don't need to worry about me. I need to fix my eyes on his kingdom. And when we do this, here's the thing. We'll bring Pastor George joy and God glory by following Jesus in this way. Some of y'all are like, wait, what? 
will bring PG joy. Because here's the thing, this, this selfless thinking, this serving in pursuit of unity is what Paul says will bring him joy as he's speaking to the Philippians. Philippians 2, 2 and 5, he says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Paul is like speaking to a church, his church. He's like, hey, complete my joy. Do these things. Why? So that you'll complete my joy. As many of you guys know, Pastor George is, is getting ready to retire. And I, I can't think of a, a better way to just express honor and thanks than to seek to live like Christ in this way. And I said, I've never been a senior pastor of a church. I've been a student pastor for about three and a half years now. And I remember when I first got here, year one, it was interesting. I had a, a whole group of students. We were all walking uh, down to the fire station for a Discipleship Now event. So we were all outside, walking on the sidewalk. And I overheard uh, one of these students uh, was planning to, uh, one of the guy students was planning to shove one of these other students into uh, this bush on the sidewalk as we were walking by it. And it was like a spiky bush. Like it wasn't one of those like, ah, oh, that's funny. It was like, no, that hurt. Um, and I overheard this. And, uh, and I didn't do anything. It was like day five. I'd even been at this church. Um, but the student's dad actually had overheard it, and so uh, the student's dad actually stopped him from doing it. Um, and fast forward a year, and uh, that same student, that first student who was going to shove the other student into the bush, that student, student A, we'll just call him, um, ended up going on a mission trip to New Orleans with us and just got radically transformed by being down there and, and serving with those local ministries down there. Came back, totally different person came back as someone who no longer was looking to exploit people around him for his own gain, his own benefit, but was going out of his way to hang out with people that weren't really that cool or that popular just to make them feel welcomed and feel loved and feel as though they're part of our community here at LifePoint. And I can tell you that seeing that student's life changed and seeing how they respond to the gospel and the teachings of Jesus is one of the things that's brought me more joy being here than just about anything else. And I can only imagine that it's the same, that, it, that if George were here, he would get up and he would say the exact same thing. He would give story after story of seeing people's lives changed and seeing how they would um, lay themselves down for uh, other people, for the pursuit of the gospel. And, and I'm sure tears would just well up in his eyes as he's just telling story after story. And when we do this, we lay our personal preferences down. We bring George joy. And I can't think of a better send-off than that. But secondly, we bring glory to God. Philippians 2, 9 through 11, Paul closes out this poem about Jesus by saying, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Last story. A couple years back, Josie and I went up to Virginia to visit uh, one of her cousins. Her cousin was getting married, and so we stayed with another cousin, 
uh, whose names were, uh, were Minnie and Joel. All right? uh, Minnie and Joel had four kids. Uh, their second oldest uh, was a four-year-old at the time uh, named Marta. Um, and Marta was a pretty smart young girl. Um, but I remember, this is incredible, I remember, again, keep in mind, four years old. We all got together one morning uh, for their kind of daily family devotional time. So they'd all get together, all four of them, and then Minnie and Joel would sit down, and Joel would pull out, pull out the Bible, and they would just kind of read through a story uh, about Jesus in the Bible, and they'd talk to their kids about it. And so Joel was in one of the parables of Jesus, and right as we're about to get started, uh, Minnie, the mom, she looks at uh, her kids, and she says, hey, question, what do you call a story that's not true, but tells about something that is true? And I'm even sitting there, like, what, what are you, what are you, what are you talking about? And her four-year-old daughter raises her hand, Marta, she's like, an allegory? And Josie and I are just like, what? And in that moment, I was like, listen, like, I don't know what y'all do to raise those kids, but like, whatever it is, like, give me the playbook, because like, that's what I want to do. Like, I want my little daughter saying, uh, allegory, right? Like, because here's the thing, like, how kids respond, this isn't true 100% of the time, right? But a lot of times, how kids act, how they engage other people, how they respond in situations is a reflection of the parent. It, it is, both positive and negative, Right? And we've all been in those situations where like been at a dinner party or whatever and some kid's misbehaving. The back of your mind, don't lie, I know you do this. Back of your mind, you're thinking like, man, who's that kid's parent? Right? And even as the parent, right, if your kid is misbehaving, you're just like, oh, stop it, right? Because in the back of your mind, you know they're going to think I'm a terrible parent because of how you're acting right now. And that's because kids, how they act, how they behave, they communicate something about their parent and who their parent is. And it's the same way with us as followers of Jesus, as adopted sons and daughters of the kingdom, how we live our lives either raises God's glory in the eyes of other people or diminishes it. And so as we are in this season right now of COVID-19, and New Year's is coming, and again, people can have their own opinions. I think January 1st is going to come around and COVID's still going to be here. Um, But regardless, we are in a season of difficulty and a season of suffering. And there's ways for us as followers of Jesus to stand out and spotlight the glory and the love of Jesus to a world that desperately needs to know him. That we can have a story here in Plano, Texas to proclaim God's glory. There's a way for us to not nosedive as we see those stories and think, man, I want want something like that. Because I want to praise God. I want him to look awesome. There's a way we can not nosedive, but it only happens if we decide that we're going to consider others' preferences as more significant than our own. And we don't do that as a grudge, as like, oh, I can't believe this, I'm so oppressed. Like, no, 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 we do this because we have a God who's already taken care of us, who's got every single one of our needs taken care of. And that's what I want for us to step out And to make a story that would praise God and give PG the most enjoyable send-off they possibly could. And God willing, we'll do this. Let's go ahead and pray together. Father, I thank you, Lord, for, for your word. 
Um, that your word speaks truth to us. Your word doesn't pull punches. Your word uh, communicates to us in, in, in a loving and kind way. And sometimes that kindness hurts. Sometimes it brings a lot of comfort, but sometimes it hurts. And just, again, me personally, just speaking about my time um, in this text, just found a lot of things is like, man, that hurts and that's not right. And I don't do this and I don't do that right. And I need to turn from that. And I don't receive that with shame or thinking that you think less of me because of it or that I've fallen down a couple notches on the ladder in your eyes because I didn't do something the way that I think that you would have called me to do it. Now, rather, I see your word speaking truth to my life, cutting me at joint and marrow. I see it as an act of love because the opposite of love is for you to just ignore me and let me just run off and do my own thing piercing myself the whole way. So Father, I thank you for the grace and the kindness of your word. And I pray, God, that knowing there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, God, I pray that just each of us, you would just speak to us wherever it is that you know we need. That your loving spirit would come in and bring attention to where we need to fix attention on. You're a good father, and that doesn't ever change. And so, Lord, I love you, and I trust you. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.